This is Prayer Room Companion, episode 23 for September 22, 2010. A German goes to London, Pope Benedict's visit to the United Kingdom. Welcome to This Week in Prayer Room Companion. I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald. And I'm Father Andrew Dickinson. And uh, this week, uh, sort of following up on last week, actually, we didn't intend to do it this way, but it worked out that way, perhaps uh, in the light of divine providence. Father and I, Andrew and I thought it might be good to talk about the Holy Father's uh, just concluded apostolic journey to the United Kingdom. A uh, four-day trip he made over the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th to the UK, first Scotland and then England and Wales. Um, uh, maybe the number of addresses, um, a number certainly of, of just appearances in those addresses, um, in many cases, not just the words he said, but but the symbolism of of maybe where he was or, or uh, just the general themes of his addresses were um, noteworthy. And so we thought that in light of last week's podcast on Cardinal Newman, uh, this might be a, a, a good um, follow-up podcast. Uh, and we thought we'd begin, actually, with um, his address. And what we're going to do is sort of go through chronologically from beginning to end, just commenting on, on the, the, some of the dr- addresses and, and not just the words, but also, in some cases, the, the acts themselves, so to speak, their symbolism. Um, but go through it chronologically, um, the ones that struck us, um, uh, beginning with his, his trip there on Thursday. Uh, Father Andrew, I was, I was struck, as I mentioned to you, by the second question in the interview um, uh, with the Holy Father on the plane flight from Rome to, um, to Scotland. Um, th- this question, um, and these questions are submitted in advance. Uh, it's, it's not a, a live press conference in the sense that they ask whatever questions they want. They're, they're submitted in advance, and the, and the Holy Father, together with his aides, um, dis, uh, address the particular questions that they think are most compelling for, for various reasons. And the one that struck me was the second question, uh, which says, uh, the, the United Kingdom, like many other Western countries, is considered a secular nation with a strong atheistic movement associated with cultural influences. However, there are also signs that religious faith, in particular in Jesus Christ, is still vibrant at the personal level. Can one do something to make the church as an institution more credible and attractive to all? Now, this this was to me a, a very uh, a very interesting question, a very a compelling question, a good question. Um, what can what can the church do to make itself as an institution more credible and attractive to all? And the Holy Father takes it. I mean, in hindsight, it's not. It makes complete sense to me. Um, Father Andrew, the way he takes it, but it, it's it's typical of him in hindsight. Yet at first, it's like what? Because he says this is the first thing he says. One might say that a church which seeks above all to be attractive would already be on the wrong path, because the church does not work for itself, does not work to increase its numbers so as to have power. Rather, the church is at the service of another, of course, of Jesus Christ. And he goes on, and I encourage you. I don't want to take the time to read his entire answer, but just the, the beginning that way, the reminder that the church does not exist for itself, but rather for Christ. And he put it so starkly to say that a church which seeks to be attractive would already be on the wrong path. Father, that just that just struck me as very Benedictine, very Ratzingerian in hindsight, but it's first sort of a, a provocative answer to, uh, to, to me what was a good question. What's incredibly interesting, you know, our, pre- our presumptions in our culture as we're formed by our culture, by the air we breathe, is that you'd expect him to give the Madison Avenue answer maybe, right? Well, we need to have better advertising, we need to have uh, 
better things uh, in this way or that way, more attractive homilies, things like that. They'll really engage uh, the listeners. But he's saying, no, to, for the church to fulfill its purpose, it needs to be faithful. It needs fidelity. It needs to be faithful to the one that she serves, who is Jesus Christ, uh, and, to, and to be at the service of his proclamation. In that sense, he's truly evangelical. Absolutely. It struck me. Yep. Uh, you know, you think about uh, sometimes I'll see in the papers or on TVs, maybe not so much in South Dakota where we are, but when I was living in Denver, most certainly, you'd see an evangelical megachurch, uh, you know, that's advertising, you know, free iPod giveaway, free big screen T giveaway, and things like that to bring people in. And very, in that sense, trying to, to reach out and spread the word. But at the same time, you know, you can run that risk that you start to sell yourself instead of selling Jesus Christ, instead of selling the message. And that uh, transparency, he goes on a little bit later, um, and saying that the church doesn't want, does not seek to be attractive in and of herself, doesn't seek to be attractive in and of herself. Oh, look how beautiful the building is, look how beautiful the music is, look how eloquent Father is. The church does not seek to be attractive in and of herself, but must be transparent for Jesus Christ. Right. And to, to, to show him forth and that he is the one that will attract. I know my uh, myself, I find myself most often uh, kind of saying a little prayer after the gospel before a homily, saying, you know, Lord, just don't let me get in the way of what your word desires to do uh, that has just been proclaimed. Right. Yeah, the, that, 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 that transparency that we're all called to be. Um, to let Christ truly shine through us. Uh, when I read this from the Holy Father, the other thing that I rem- was reminded of, of course, he's a man of the Second Vatican Council, uh, an important role at the Council. Um, one of the most important documents of that Council was um, the, the the dogmatic constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. And Lumen Gentium, the title, the Latin title, means Light of the Nations. And so you think, oh, this is the dogmatic constitution of the Church, um, Light of the Nations, that must be referring to Christ, uh, to the Church, but in fact it's referring to Christ. Uh, and again, that's very much um, the the underlying theme of Benedict, as you said, very evangelical. Right, um, and of course that that line, "Light of the Nations," coming from uh, Luke chapter two, when uh, the Christ child is presenting the temple, temple, and Simeon the prophet sees him and sings forth in praise to God. Absolutely. You know, another thing uh, in this regard too that came to mind when I when I first read this is uh, it's uh, I don't think Pope Benedict was was consulting uh, Peter Kreeft, a, a Catholic philosopher, and Thomist uh, scholar from uh, Boston College, a very good man, good author. But Peter Kreeft has a saying that says, nothing is so quickly out of date as the up-to-date. Yeah. Yeah. And so, therefore, in terms of being attractive and sort of that Madison Avenue approach as opposed to the evangelical, is that what you're saying there? Oh, very much so. Very much so. To be faithful to Christ, which in some ways seems very dated, is actually the truest way to be timeless. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, anything else about that question and answer, Father, that struck you, or should we move on? I think let's move along to, uh, I think you wanted to move to his uh, mass uh, in uh, Glasgow in Scotland on Thursday when he arrived there. Did you not? That's correct. Uh, he, it, as, as you said, he arrived in Glasgow on Thursday. and he, Talk with the Queen first. Met the Queen. Uh, that's right, and they, they had a, a nice a nice exchange of addresses there, which would be a. I, I found them interesting to read, and I'm sure others would as well. Um, he said a lot, though. So, <laughs> if we, as you mentioned beforehand, if we if we tried to t- comment on every single address, we'd be here forever, and uh, we don't want to uh, go on. People can only listen to us for so long, right, Father? 
Yes. There's only so much penance you can do. Exactly. So, so yeah, the, the homily for that Mass in Glasgow that he offered, um, he talks at one point in there about um, the importance of the evangelization of culture. Uh, he says, the evangelization of culture is all the more important in our times when a dictatorship of relativism threatens to obscure the unchanging truth about man's nature, his destiny, and the ultimate good. And he, he talks about how religion is... Um, You've got to. I think people have to remember the Holy Father coming to to the UK. There's a lot of press. A lot of the big uh, ang- um, atheist authors wanted to have him arrested when he landed, and so on. Um, so there's a very uh, vocal atheist movement, uh, and certainly strong secularism. But the Holy Father reminds us and reminds the English people. Um, the people of the UK, I guess, the Scottish people in this case. Religion is a guarantee of authentic liberty and respect, leading us to look upon every person as brother and sister. And so he calls the lay lay faithful in particular um, to be, not only to be examples of faith in public, but also to put the case for the promotion of faith's wisdom and vision in the public forum. Society today needs clear voices which propose our right to live, not in a jungle of self-destructive and arbitrary freedoms, been in a society which works for the true welfare of its citizens and offers them guidance and protection in the face of their weakness and fragility. So this this call to to um, Christians, Catholics in particular, uh, and the lay people in particular, um, to not just live their lives, which certainly we must always do, but also to be unafraid, to be courageous in um, uh, promoting the the role, the place, the value that that Catholic faith has in the public sphere. Very much so. And, you know, I, I don't think it would be underestimated enough the atmosphere of um, difficulty that there is, that, that it currently exists in uh, the United Kingdom towards that public proclamation of the faith. We touched a little bit on it last week. Uh, I remember uh, hearing a, a census number that said uh, there's over 100,000 people in Britain, I think it was. I don't know if it was the United Kingdom, but I think it was Britain. Over 100,000 people at their last census who identified their religion as Jedi. You know, and, and so there's this, you know, kind of almost this mocking or parody of of belief and faith, whether through um, whatever wounds or dissatisfaction or discouragement uh, there might be. But that that really gives that dictatorship of relativism room to grow and that advance of, of personal license, you know, to do whatever you want. And it's tough to stand up against people saying, well, you know, gosh, shouldn't you want people to be free to do what they want? Are you against freedom? Right. Uh, no. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the real statement is if, if this is freedom, I think I'd rather be in jail. Right. You know, I mean, if, if freedom is to just bear yourself into your passions, your desires, and find yourself enslaved to those passions and desires, you know, look at all the um, different anonymous groups that we have these days. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, all those people being free. Right. They're supposed to be free, and they find themselves enslaved. And I think that's a cultural motif they're speaking to. You know that religion is, in fact, a guarantee of authentic liberty and respect. We need to look upon every person as a brother or sister. And there, he also you know touches to we've lost some of that deeper reality um, in our culture to say what's the foundation of these things? What's the foundation of my freedom? What's the foundation of my ability to go out and stand on a street corner? and say wrong things, say silly things, say that aliens are coming to take over the world. 
right? Where is my freedom to do that come from? And when we lose religion in our discussions, we lose where that grounding uh, exists. Right, I, and that's, I, I think we may have touched on this in our podcast uh, a couple episodes ago on, on atheism, on faith and reason. Um, there's, there's a great intellectual capital which, which Christianity, in general Catholicism in particular, has provided to Western civilization um, that is being depleted by those who fail to recognize that, in fact, these, these fundamental ethical views they hold owe themselves to, to the church, to, to the, the, the Christian Catholic tradition. Very much so. And it's interesting, too, to, uh, to think that um, as we keep you know, deliberately moving away from it, we keep deliberately backing into that, that trap where things become relative. And if everything's relative, what can finally become relative is my own freedom. Absolutely. Right. Uh, I, I'm reminded, John, John Paul II, um, I think in his encyclical, on, it's, I think in Faith and Unfaith and Reason, Fides et Ratio, said, truth and freedom either go, uh, they, go together hand in hand or they perish in misery, something to that, that effect, that, that, that freedom depends on truth, on a conception of the nature of reality, not just my own arbitrary whims. Right. And I think, and it is something that, uh, John Paul II would, uh, Pope John Paul the Great would certainly agree to in this way. And Pope Bendix says, and what we need then, you know, he says, I appeal in particular to you, the lay faithful. You know, he's asking you something. You know, he's asking you something, Dr. Birdwell, you, a uh, good member of the lay faithful, and any other members of the faithful listening, you know, that we need that witness uh, according to your baptismal calling and mission. You, know, you have a mission to be example of faith in public, but also to, by your actions, by your life, and by your words make the case for the promotion of faith's wisdom and vision in the public forum right uh, to be a part of that public forum the um uh, i'm thinking back to uh, pope bendix's words in germany in the cologne world youth day 2005 when he said uh, the saints are the true reformers absolutely you know we need you to be saints so the church jesus christ needs you to be saints uh from one of the prefaces i don't i think it's from uh preface for uh Feasts of Holy Men and Women, where it says that uh, our Lord raises up saints as a living gospel for all men to hear. Yeah, you're, and the comment on um, saints are the true reformers, I remember Benedict said way back, I think in the late 70s, that, that the implementation of the Second Vatican Council um, depended on saints, that mm-hmm. is, on, on, on men and women taking up the call of the council and implementing it in their own lives, in their families, um, in their work, it's, in your case, Father is a priest. Uh, in the case of religious, um, in their the, their lives of ministry, and embodying what the council said. It's not just a, enough to. Well, first of all, we do need to read the texts themselves, but then we need to embrace them in the context of our love and faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, um, so that's sort of some of the things that I think we we were both, uh, well, me in particular, were struck by on Thursday. Friday was jam packed in many ways in terms Boy, of just of of of, of, of um, uh, words, great great comment or great comments from the Holy Father, but also uh, just the gestures, the symbolic acts. Um, and I know, Father, you were struck by um, a couple of the um, his his. Um, 
addresses on that day, um, and, and, and as was I, but one in particular I know that you talked about was his meeting with um, Anglicans um, and others at, at Lambeth Palace and then later at, at Westminster Abbey. Um, what about either or both of those struck you? Well, I, I think first of all is to go back to this idea of this the symbolic significance of what's happening here. Uh, just to, to stay from the ground before we dive into any of the texts. You know, the coverage as far as on mainstream media here in the United States was very, very wane, very, very thin, uh, gruel-like, you could say. It was like having some broth when you're famishing. Um, the, uh, uh, the main thing that really covered was, uh, and very important, of course, was his memory with uh, his meeting uh, with some members or some representatives of those who had been uh, abused within the church, whether uh, under the care of priests or in the care of other people, uh, and uh, which is very important. But at the same time, you know, some of these symbolic acts that we're going to talk about here, I just, when you start to think about them historically, they blow the mind. I think, again, and, and that first one that we're going to talk about here is when he, uh, he visits uh, Westminster Hall and uh, spoke to uh, the the various uh, civil authorities. And so essentially, I'm guessing this is probably most of Parliament, because I do remember reading uh, that uh, they they closed down the parliamentary pubs on Friday uh, in preparation of Pope Benedict's um, uh, speech that, uh, that they wouldn't, uh, pardon me, I'm stumbling a bit over the words, but so they wouldn't be too rowdy as the British Parliament is known to be. Mm-hmm. So here he is standing in Westminster Hall, where uh, and, and he call, he call, he calls attention to this too, that he's standing in a place where uh, you know just under five hundred years ago, uh, Saint Thomas More, canonized saint and martyr of the Catholic Church. How was he a martyr? He was martyr because he was tried for treason by King Henry VIII, the first head of the Church of England, the first head of the Church of England tries him for treason because he won't sign the act of succession which would have uh, which would have been an act of uh, where St. Thomas More would have given up his allegiance to the Holy Father in Rome and sworn allegiance in terms of faith to the secular now religious King Henry VIII and uh, so there is Pope Benedict standing on that ground and speaking as you know the Pope as a successor of St. Peter as a successor of I don't remember which pope it was at the time of the Reformation. Was it that Innocent V? That's in the way back machine. (laughs) That's in the way back time machine. And uh, so he's standing at that place, you know, uh, in the office of the person that St. Thomas More would uh, rather die than forsake that office, than forsake that man. And uh, and he's speaking to British Parliament. So to me, historically, that's just an amazing, uh, amazing action. Absolutely. Just the, the, again, as you said, the mere, the symbolism of his mere presence in that hall and everything that it represents in that context. Exactly. And so, then you and I were both uh, uh, struck by uh, several different aspects of uh, that talk, of uh, his address to that parliament. Uh, I think for me, uh, most striking was uh, the notion of uh, religion being a vital partner of uh, the state. Uh, at one point he's talking about the various uh, foundations of, uh, 
of uh, the moral square, of freedom, of even the parliamentary system of government having its foundations, as we were talking about before, in uh, what, uh, what Catholicism has given in, to the world and what Christianity has given to the world. And at, uh, so at one point towards the end, and I remember kind of, I think, maybe tapping my, uh, the table as I was listening to this online on Friday, where he says, religion, in other words, is not a problem for legislators to solve, but a vital contributor to the national conversation. In this slide, I cannot but voice my concern at the increasing marginalization of religion, particularly of Christianity, that's taking place in some quarters, even in nations which place a great emphasis on tolerance. You know, if that wasn't a direct, uh, a direct statement to that British Parliament, I don't know what was. <laughs> what else uh, for you uh, struck you from that? Uh, that talk? that that line certainly, I think, and that's one of the ones that get most to play. Um, you mentioned, you know, our coverage on this side. The coverage over there, the media coverage was, uh, of course, obviously much more extensive. He's there, um, but even relatively positive. I think uh, people were, um, of course, maybe expecting the worst or depending on which side you're on, expecting the best. And uh, they were ultimately disappointed um, because it was a very successful trip. Um, that was one line that I think got, got a lot of play in, um, in the, the, uh, the British uh, coverage. Uh, the other thing that, that, that struck me earlier on, um, he, he talks about how, um, well, this is what he says, the, the fundamental questions at stake in Thomas More's trial Continue, continue to present themselves in ever-changing terms as new social, social conditions emerge. And he goes on to say, each generation, as it seeks to advance the common good, must ask anew, what are the requirements that governments may reasonably impose upon citizens, and how far do they extend? By appeal to what authority can moral dilemmas be resolved? These questions take us directly to the ethical foundations of civil discourse. And he goes on from there. Uh, that reminds me first what we were saying earlier about the, the ultimate foundations of civil discourse, um, the ethical foundations of civil discourse. But also, um, Father, and I mentioned this to you beforehand, what struck me about this passage is Benedict often reminds us that we have to ask every individual, every generation has to ask certain questions anew of itself, of him or herself. Um, we can't just sit back and rest on the laurels of those who have gone before us. We have to continually ask these questions anew ourselves. Uh, in his second encyclical, Space Salvi, uh, he talks about how um, we we can't just sort of trust that this there's this arc of pro progress that will continue um and and our life um both in material sense and also spiritual sense will just continue to get better and better on its own sort of an autopilot no we always have to engage ourselves anew every person every generation has to ask the, themselves these questions anew we can't just rest on what's gone before us there has to be the ongoing renewal of of each one of us, and then by extension of our families, um, our communities, our faith communities, and so on, um, throughout life. It makes sense, too, if you think of it in terms of our own Declaration of Independence here as one of those foundational documents uh, for our country. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with uh, an certain, inalienable, certain inalienable rights, chief amongst these, the pursuit of uh, life, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, so this whole idea that there is some sort of foundation outside of the country itself, outside of the government itself, um, 
that must be appealed to. And I think that's the question he's raising. What are your foundations? Right. And, and, and you have to keep asking yourself because if, each, if a generation stops asking itself um, and then following generations stop asking themselves that, it, you're going you're gonna to be in a slippery slope towards a place that the society is not going to want to go. And just after that uh, section you're quoting, he says, uh, you know, if the moral principles underpinning the democratic process are themselves determined by nothing more than solid than social consensus, hey, we all think that's okay, great. He says, then the fragility of the process becomes all too evident. So really, just calling to mind, remind us that uh, as an outside observer, I guess you could say, that democracy is fragile. I remember John Paul II taught, remarked um, in one of his addresses in the, in the 90s, and not that, that there were just a couple of those, but somewhere he talks about he talked about how um, democracy can lead towards a sort of soft totalitarianism, a soft despotism if it's not careful. And I think to put it in Benedict, Benedict's terms, if each generation does not ask itself these questions anew, what are the foundations for the way we live and act and, and how we think, what we believe? So, so that's yeah. kind of the, the other aspect. Um, and again, there's a lot. And I should say, by the way, if, if, to, to read these, they're, they're all on the Vatican's website. You can find them in all sorts of places. But um, if you just do... Um, uh, uh, internet search on Google or whatever search engine for Apostolic Journey to the United Kingdom um, and mention <laughs> because Google. we all know how to spell apostolic. That's true. Yes. Um, yes. Google's very Actually, good though, at guessing. So uh, go ahead. Uh, although, if you just go to the Vatican website and go to the English uh, homepage, there is a um, uh, a section for his talk still on the homepage or for his visit uh, to the United Kingdom, just on their homepage, on the English language landing page, with all the different talks uh, laid out there. There you go. So you should be able to... F- there, and there'll be, even when that's got off the, first page, off the front page, rather, um, they'll, they'll remain certainly on the Vatican's website. So you'll be able to find them uh, whenever you're listening to the podcast, even if it's years from now, when you remember the great wisdom and insight that Father Andrew and Dr. Bergwald had to share. You can find them then. Speaking of wise wisdom, why don't we uh, move on uh, to another momentous event? And uh, I think uh, I think I might keep my thoughts on this short. Uh, but uh, the uh, event of his uh, appearance with the Anglican uh, Church, he had a couple different appearances with the Anglican Church. Now, mind you, remember this church a little uh, under five hundred years ago uh, separated itself uh, from uh, communion with Rome, from communion with the Holy Father, from communion with uh, St. Peter's. Really, only in uh, last century or so that some uh, thawing of that relationship has occurred. Now, not that anything was solved in this meeting, but pretty, uh, pretty momentous event that, uh, uh, that, the, success, that the successor of uh, St. Peter, the Pope, and then uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, some of his other bishops and people should get together. Just, and I think yeah. for myself, I think for myself, uh, can the interesting aspect of this is um, the whole idea that uh, uh, I mean, it, just, it just kind of blows my mind. I think I'm just now trying to think of words to talk about it, that he'd appear in that way, uh, appear at a public vesper service with them, and he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them to fidelity with Jesus Christ and saying, really, this is, you know, the, the roots of the ecumenical movement uh, almost uh, around 100 years ago or so in Glasgow when it was founded the modern ecumenical movement of the different uh, Christian communities and the Catholic Church throughout the world, 
is uh, to proclaim Jesus Christ, you know, that, uh, that the church might be one so that the world might believe in Jesus Christ and the Father whom, uh, who sent him. And uh, saying this is this really needs to keep on being the main purpose of our gatherings, and that through this unity with Jesus Christ, we'll move towards our own unity. And and the fact that this is again, you know, the Bishop of Rome, as you said, encouraging. You know, I, I rem- I'm reminded there of of what Jesus says to Peter in I think Luke's Gospel. Um, when you have turned, you, when you have recovered from. Uh, your your own denial of me, basically, um, strengthen your brethren, and that's what Peter is doing. That's what Benedict is doing with his granted separated brethren, but still his brothers in Christ. In fact, in fact, he calls a deliberate uh, awareness to that in the uh, vespers at Westminster Abbey and his little address with them. He says. Uh, I give you these words of encouragement and fidelity to my ministry as the Bishop of Rome and the successor of St. Peter. Right. Precisely as Peter, he is, he is encouraging them that, in that way. Yeah. yeah. So very beautiful, very beautiful. I encourage people to read that, look into that a bit more. Uh, it's, so that's, again, this is all just on Friday. Um, his meeting with, two meetings with the Anglicans, uh, this, this address at Westminster Hall with British Society. Um, again, a, a packed day. Saturday was just as packed. I, I had intended to offer some comments on, on some of the Holy Father's remarks uh, at the cathedral, um, the cathedral in Westminster um, and his homily there, but um, for the sake of time, I, I think it would be best to move on. I'd encourage you again to read it yourself, but, but I'd like to move on to um, his remarks at Hyde Park, uh, a large park in London uh, near... Um, near the oh boy Buckingham Palace, um, which he drove by on his way, on his route to Hyde Park on Saturday evening um, for a vigil service, a prayer service, including Eucharistic um, exposition and adoration. Congratulations, you won. With uh, a number of people from, uh, throughout, from throughout England. Uh, and f- um, I-, I was struck by that. I know Father was struck by that. One of the things for me, symbolically, there were eighty thousand people, Father, at this this uh, this vigil service. Um, and and as-, as you saw at one point, the Holy Father lighting. He had an Easter candle. Two young people came up and lit their two candles, and that proceeded out. There were three thousand people holding candles throughout this crowd of eighty thousand people, and just the symbolism of that, the the, the faith of. Of, of Peter, in a sense, um, enkindling or strengthening the faith of this mass of people. I mean, apart from what he said, um, just that itself struck me in a powerful way. Well, and you think about, uh, you know, here in the United States, I, mean, I was familiar with Hyde Park, but you know, that's kind of a big place of uh, public gatherings, a big place of uh, rock concerts. Not that there's anything wrong with rock and roll in and of itself, but, you know, not the Beatles, of course, one day, uh, at one time, did a, uh, a show there, and uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, John Lennon saying the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Right. So, so just the the, the fact of his being there, and then what he had to say, uh, it was particularly around Newman, um, Father. What uh, what struck you about his comments from from Hyde Park? Well, I, I use this in my homily on uh, Sunday. Uh, but just really, he, he talks about uh, three lessons uh, from the life of Cardinal Newman. And a lot of these touch back to points that we've already made and points that he was making all throughout 
uh, his trip. And so you can really, when you see him speaking explicitly about Newman in this way, you can kind of, ah, uh-uh, you know, put all the points together from his other, from his landing in Scotland to his talk at Westminster Hall with the Parliament. Um, it just starts to make uh, a little more sense. So he makes uh, three points. First, that, uh, you know, uh, the men, as men and women, were made for truth, that we can understand truth, that we can find truth, and in truth we find that ultimate freedom. Uh, speaking against the idea that there's a despair in our day uh, against uh, finding the truth. And I think we've talked about that before, Dr. Bergwald, right. a little bit. Uh, the other uh, point, the second point then would be that in finding this truth, uh, there can be a cost. Uh, there can be a cost to us in seeking the truth and knowing the truth and holding fast to that truth. And so uh, uh, that that freedom, that freedom that we find in the truth, uh, isn't always comfort. You know, and he talks about, uh, in our own time, the price to be paid for the fidelity to the gospel is no longer being hanged, drawn, and quartered, right? So in calling to mind there are some of the martyrs that were killed in England uh, for being faithful to uh, Rome, uh, in, especially in the first century or so after uh, uh, Henry VIII separated from Rome. So it may not be that physical martyrdom, but faithfulness to the gospel often involves being dismissed out of hand, ridiculed, or parodied. Uh, and yet the church cannot withdraw from the task of proclaiming Christ. Uh, so just then I think about that oftentimes with uh, college students. Right. You know, uh, Dr. Burwood, how hesitant they are to maybe even just make the sign of the cross when they're eating dinner in the student union. And then uh, his final point with uh, Newman uh, was just that uh, there needs to be that integrity then, and kind of building towards this. That Cardinal Newman teaches us that we need to have that integrity between believing and living, which, I don't know about you, seems to always be the hardest part of my own life. Right. And so I think those are three great points and three great lessons to take from blessed uh, Cardinal Newman and what he uh, says to the church and the world today. Yeah, and I, I think... Uh, I- Apart from those, he also talks about how um, there's a Benedict quotes from uh, of, uh, from uh, Newman. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another, and and so Benedict draws from that just. Um, pointing out that Newman knew so deeply and so clearly that God had a specific task, a specific mission for him um, in his life. And Benedict says that that's true for each one of us. Uh, later on, he, uh, he says, each of us has a mission. Each of us is called to change the world, to work for a culture of life, a culture forged by love and respect for the dignity of each human person. And then he reminds us, the young people in particular, that, um, of course, we, we don't just get to make this up on our own. Jesus is the one who knows what that de- de- definite service is for each one of us and that we need to be open to him in prayer and sacraments uh, to discerning what it is that this specific task, this definite service that God desires for us to accomplish, what it, it is um, and, and undertake in our own lives. Um, of course, there is so much else, uh, Father, um, uh that, that we talked about, but, but I think for the sake of, sake of time, um, we, we might wrap it up there. Unless you have any other thoughts that you'd like to add? No, I think that's good. Uh, just read these texts. Read these texts. Yeah, read, read, 
Um, I've, I've got, Father, I think I've mentioned you before. I have a sticky note on my desk. How do we incarnate church teaching? And I think what, 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 it, it, what we have to do is familiarize ourselves with what the church has to say to us. In particular, in this case, of course, what the Holy Father had to say on his apostolic journey to, to, to England, to London, because so much of it is applicable to all of us, wherever we may live. So I, I heartily second that. Read the texts. So, and again, you can find those on the Vatican website. Uh, as Father mentioned, they're, there's a, they're, they're laid out on the uh, English front page, or you can just sort of Google for them, uh, Pope Benedict in the United Kingdom, something like that. So until next time, Father Andrew Dickinson, Dr. Chris Bergwald, we thank you for listening, and um, God bless, and have a great week. God bless you.